Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa Subhanallah Al-Aliyyil Azim Al-Ladhi Manna Alayna Bina'matil Islam Allahu Akbar Al-Aliyyil Muta'al Wa Nusalli Wa Nusallim Wa Nubarik Ala Muhammad Wa Ala Alihi Wa Ashabih ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين لا إله إلا الله يقول الله في محكم آياته في سورة الشورى والذين يجتنبون كبائر الإثم والفواحش وإذا ما غضبوا فهم يغفرون والذين استجابوا لربهم وأقاموا الصلاة وأمرهم شورى بينهم ومما رزقناهم ينفقون والذين إذا أصابهم البغي هم ينتصرون وجزاء سيئة سيئة مثلها فمن عفا وأصلح فأجره على الله إنه لا يحب الظالمين ولمن انتصر بعد ظلمه فأولئك ما عليهم من سبيل إنما السبيل على الذين يظلمون الناس ويبغون في الأرض بغير الحق أولئك لهم عذاب أليم ولمن صبر وغفر إن ذلك لمن لمن عزم الأمور صدق الله العلي العظيم سبحان الله الذي لا لا تقال إلا له Subhanallah that gave us the gift of Islam and the wisdom of the revelation and the moral example of, of Prophet Muhammad, the final prophet. And the moral example of the prophets and the words of the Quran before I translate or paraphrase the ayat which in so many ways set nothing short of the constitution for our existence and a constitution for our social and moral and ethical order in this world. The Quran manifests the power of words. And the reason words make a great deal of difference 
is because of the assumption of creation, of nature, of the way that Allah created existence, that human beings are intelligent animals, animals capable of reason and reasoning. And intelligent animals and rational animals respond to words. If you reflect upon it, Qudrat al-Aqd, as the Quran persistently reminds us, in calling us to our aqul, to our reason, it's simply underscoring something that we all innately know, that what constitutes the earmark of the human species is that it is an animal capable of reason. And the way that you reach that reason is through the power of words. The more human being, the more human beings respond, stop responding to words, the more words lose their place and their role in the life of human beings, the more dehumanized the human factor become. So, if you reflect upon this, you will find a direct correlation between Amran or civilization and the habits of those who constitute this civilization their habits in terms of their ability to respond to words, to reason. Put differently, in the same way that Allah created the universe through the power of words, Allah says for something to be, so it bees. Allah effects creation through words. The most miraculous thing about human beings is their ability to decide upon their path, having comprehended the power of words. What makes us accountable before Allah is either our willingness to respond to words or our refusal and our obstinance before words. Again, if you reflect upon the rather obvious, without words, there would be no accountability. In law, if there is no notice or no law, then you cannot hold someone responsible or accountable. It is the power of words. Having uttered the words that constitute the law, 
creates responsibility. Having uttered the words that constitute notice creates accountability. The way that Allah reaches us and creates the entire mechanism of responsibility and accountability is through the medium of words. And words are revelation. So if Allah speaks to us and puts us on notice through the power of words, if human beings no longer respond to words, the words no longer leave an impact upon them, the entire mechanism of discharging our covenant before Allah, and in fact, the entire edifice and the entire mechanism, the very logic, the very reason behind the entire process of creation, covenantal existence, responsibility, accountability, falls apart. So, in Surah Al-Shura, when Allah puts us on notice and talks to us in a normative setting, الَّذِينَهُمْ Those who Allah is describing the state of a people who not only exist in a covenantal relationship with Allah, in a who have not only existed in, in, in fully aware of their covenantal relationship, but who are successfully discharging this covenantal relationship. And Allah tells us, So they are fully aware of their responsibilities before the Most High. الرحمن الرحيم الذين استجابوا لربهم وأقاموا الصلاة and prayer is something that and we've talked about this in, in the past that prayer is a mechanism by which we acknowledge the ethical issue of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But immediately, beyond acceptance and beyond prayer, Allah addresses the social ethics of a people who in fact 
are these rational animals who are in a great state of grace with the Lord. Amrahum shura baynahum wa mimma razaqnahum yanfuqun they conduct their affairs through a system of shura. And money is not hoarded and coveted between them, but circulates. It is as if Allah is saying that a fully engaged society, what, what is shura? Shura is the power of words. They, they share words with each other. Now, if they share words and they all ignore each other words, in other words, if they do shura and consultation doesn't even come close to the idea, so I, I don't, maybe the, the better word is deliberation, that their, their affairs are deliberative among each other, between them. If this deliberative process is formalistic, where they get together, listen to each other talk, and then thoroughly ignore each other. It is hard to imagine that we could say that they've discharged the obligation of shura. Now, of course, in, in Islamic law, they get into this argument about whether shura is mulzima or ghayyam mulzima, binding or not binding. I'm not, I'm not going to get into that because that has become a legalistic, technical topic. I am talking about the social ethics of rational Muslim human beings. Their issues are always the way they negotiate their affairs in life is deliberative. And it is as if this active deliberative process also leads to the circulation of wealth. But critically, very quickly, in the area right following, Allah reminds us, وَالَّذِينَ إِذَا أَصَابَهُمُ الْبَغْيِ فَهُمْ يَنْتَصِرُونَ Again, if we are people that take words seriously, when Allah reminds us that those who are in a state of grace with God, استجابوا لربهم, there is a state of إجابة or استجابة, Their affairs are deliberative. Their wealth is not coveted, hoarded. There, there isn't sharp inequities between the poor and the rich in this society. But then, quickly, Allah reminds us, in this social, ethical order, If there is injustice, 
Berry. If there is injustice, and there is no way to address this injustice, in other words, if there is no mechanism for intisar did al-baghi, there is no way that in the Quranic language to be literally, literally translated as victorious against injustice, what it means is that you can, there are ways that you can address injustice. If you live in a society in which you cannot address injustice, in which baghi can occur, baghi is a form of ta'addi. Ta'addi is a form of aggression. In other words, when you violate someone else's rights, that's baghi. But what if you exist in a society in which rights can be violated, boundaries can be violated, territory can be violated, but there is no way for intisar al-baghi for addressing and conquering injustice. Can you say that this society then is a state in a state of istijaba li rabbihim, in a state of grace with the Lord? You can't. We don't take the words of the Quran as rational animals. We don't take the words of the Quran seriously. Again, a society in which there is an elite that rules like Fir'aun did, لا أريكم إلا ما أرى. You can only do what I want you to do. Like when Sisi was once talking to the Egyptian people and he said, listen to no one but me. Only There's only me. A society in which there is no deliberative process. A society in which wealth is not distributed justly. A society in which injustice can occur and there is no way to address injustice. There is no way للانتصار على البغي. cannot by definition be an Islamic society, leave alone, be a just or moral or ethical society. Now, Surah al-Shura goes to greater depths, philosophical depths beyond that, to tell us that as a principle of justice, as a principle of justice, there must always be the ability, the power of compulsion to do what? A wrong must be addressed proportionately and measuredly. 
So in other words, the mechanisms of injustice, mechanisms of justice, results in the ability to address proportional wrongs in a proportional fashion. So, wrong with its equal. If one person does infraction X and you punish them with 10 years, the second person does the same infraction and you punish them with one year, and the third person does the same infraction and you punish them with 20 years, do you have proportional justice? Obviously, you don't. You don't have sayyah So the mechanisms of justice within a moral ethical order, it is not just deliberative, it is not just distributive justice, but even the ability to address injustices must have the logic of proportionality and measuredness and consistency for it to count as true justice. Now, beyond that, it is as if beyond the processes of justice, when the Quran addresses afu or forgiveness, it addresses itself to individuals. فَمَنْ As then, after you've created the ability to address injustices in a fair way, if some of you want to forgive, then that's something between you and Allah. And as if Allah wants to make this point abundantly clear to us, Allah then says, as to those those who there is those who respond to injustice by compelling this injustice to end. Al-intasar al-azdol meaning bring an end to injustice. Those are not morally blameworthy. It's as if Allah is saying as a, as a method of mechanisms of justice, you are not blameworthy if you response to injustice is to do whatever necessary to end injustice. Allah says, 
Allah orienting our attention again, it says, what it's as if Allah telling us again through the power of words. You want you want to be among those in a state of grace with God. Among those who are istajabu lirabbihim, those who have risen up to their moral obligations before Allah, then amongst you must be the mechanism to address those to address those who are unjust and inflict injustice upon people and transgress the boundaries. Now, with words like these, with words like these, you wonder how could it be that injustice and political cowardliness and despotism and nepotism and all types of evil isms. How could it be that they are so prevalent in Muslim countries and in Muslim lands? If Allah makes it plainly clear to us, whether you want to call it democracy or you want to call it whatever you want to call it, that a state of grace with Allah, a state of istijaba lillah, can only be if your affairs are deliberative, if there is distributive economic justice amongst you, if within your society there are the mechanisms to address injustice, to compel the powerful and to empower the powerless. And Allah very clearly tells us, these are the rules of the game. You want to be with me? These are the rules of the game. How could it be in God's, for God's sake, how could it be that in Muslim lands, you have those who say, obey the ruler even if they flog your back and steal your money. In Muslim lands, there are those who philosophize injustice and oppression and despotism. How could it be that even the mechanisms and institutions of justice in Muslim lands are so backwards? and reactionary, and to say the least, undeveloped. In Muslim lands, maybe engineering is developed, maybe medicine is developed, but it is shocking how undeveloped 
thinking about justice and in the institutions of justice are. To this very day, even when I hear people talk about revolutions, whether in Iraq or Lebanon or, or Egypt, what shocks me the most is how ignorant people are about the advancements in human society in the sciences of the institutions of justice. So often, while people will talk about we need economic development, we need engineers, we need computer scientists, we need doctors, it wouldn't even occur to them that the biggest challenge confronting the society is to bring in individuals who understand how to build institutions of law that can create a system of accountability and responsibility for the weak and powerful equally. Whether Muslims in the West or Muslims in Muslim countries, our thinking about things like distributive justice, our thinking about the mechanisms of law and the institutions of law are so backwards that it is fair to say that we have attained zero development. It is truly tragic that we still live in an age in which you hear Muslims completely marginalize the power of words in the Quran and set aside the magic of words by waving away the entire discourse about deliberative justice, distributive justice, leave alone procedural justice, all of it, by simply saying, whoever has shawka, whoever has power, has the right of obedience. This is, and because khutbahs, as I said before, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is that his khutbahs always related to the living affairs of his ummah. Those who give khutbahs about coming Ramadan and preparing with extra fasting or how to do tahara or how to do, prefer, improve your taqwa are not following the sunnah of the Prophet The sunnah of the Prophet is that his khutbahs and the sunnah of the Sahaba after him, their khutbahs touched upon the living affairs of their ummah. Those who give khutbahs that have nothing to do with the living 
challenges of the Ummah do not follow the Sunnah of the Prophet or the Sahaba. The Sunnah they follow is the Sunnah al-Istibdad, the Sunnah of despotism. After rulers, despotic rulers come to power and want to control what is said in the khutbah. So bringing this back to our living life, when Muslims read the Quran and they go over something like Surah al-Shura a million times again and again, how many Muslims have memorized the Quran? How many Muslims finish the Quran from page to from cover to cover, or you know, again and again and again? But when you see that the institutions of deliberative justice and distributive justice and procedural justice, leave alone substantive justice, are not developing, that means. There is a cognitive problem between the reader and the text. In other words, God is speaking, but no one is listening. And if no one is listening, then you get precisely the type of mess that you get in our modern day and age. When you see those people who are joining the type of Islam that in the Arab world, often the ruler of the Emirat is known as the Shaitan al-Arab, the, the, the devil of Arabs. And he, he is really a devil. MBZ is a devil. There's nothing that, that could hurt Muslims that he's not involved in. Nothing. And MBS is a devil, and CC is a devil, and they're all demons. Shalteen of Ins. But when you find an Islam that legitimates and justifies the ugliness, the sheer cruelty, the sheer barbarism, the incredible absolutism, and autocracy and despotism of those like Hafiz al-Assad or Haftar or Sisi or MBS or MBZ or whatever other despot. You can, it is a fair conclusion to say whatever hadith they rely on, they've killed the Quran. They've murdered the Quran. It is as if they took the Quran and threw it in the garbage can. You can either approach the oral tradition of Islam, the oral tradition meaning riwayat, the hadith, the sunnah, the, the, the narratives about the tabi'in, and read this entire tradition in light of the moral guidance of the Quran. In other words, to interrogate that tradition in light of the moral, ethical universe that the Quran teaches you, either you do that or you end up 
with a paradox that cannot be reconciled. There are traditions of despotism that create reactionaries and backwards mentalities that cannot possibly aspire to the type of moral universe that the Quran challenges us to create. The moral universe of deliberative justice, distributive justice, procedural justice, and the substantive justice. In my view, there are many reasons, among them colonialism, where I can understand why Saudi Arabia is the way it is, the Emirates is the way it is, Egypt is the way it is, Libya is the way it is, etc., etc. Not just colonialism, but unfortunately, there are many people, many powerful people that want Israel to be the only democracy in the Middle East that don't want anything like a democratic Arab world that see democracy or any form of justice as existing in the Arab and, and Muslim world as a danger to Israel. There are a lot of people who, who think that way. And unfortunately, they're very wealthy and powerful people. And they, they, they're thoroughly convinced that in order to give Israel the higher moral plane, Israel must always be able to say, say, to say look to the West, we're the only good guys around in this area of the world. So, and if anyone ever establishes a democracy and denies Israel that claim, that somehow that endangers Israel. There are a lot of powerful people that think this way. But what I cannot understand, so there are many reasons to understand why Muslims are the way they are in the Muslim world, is when I find American Muslims or Muslims in the West ignoring the moral universe of the Quran, failing to understand anything about it, and produce an Islam that is an Islam about nothing but a system of meaningless rituals, rituals that do not lead to the liberation of human beings, do not lead to the aspirations of justice and do not lead to a higher ethical existence. To put it bluntly, an Islam that tells you your attitude towards this world must be one of just simply bitter perseverance and sabr and patience. Because this world is just evil and bad and you should just persevere through this world so you can go to the hereafter and then your fun begins in the hereafter. Those who teach that do not only create abnormal psychologies, they create sad, despairing, bitter human beings who have a big chip on their shoulders in this world do not only create the opium of the people, 
when religion truly becomes an opium of the people. But they also keep Islam truly a system of darkness and backwardness and reactionism. When religion becomes a vehicle to taking human beings to the depth of darkness instead of elevating the aspirations of human beings to a higher ethical plane, religion becomes something evil and harmful. And that, if we are God-fearing Muslims, is something that we cannot accept about our faith. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الله أكبر العلي المتعال العظيم نصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد وعلى آله وصحبه يا رب Yesterday, I get a message from one of my friends who works in the human rights field. He's asking me for some help because there is an Egyptian man called Ahmed Sabir who was arrested, had was arrested and disappeared a month ago and then was released briefly and then re-arrested and he's disappeared again. And he was asking me for, for help about Ahmed Sibya. He asked me, he, sa- he says, have you heard of Ahmed Sibya? And I, and I said, no, I hadn't heard of Ahmed Sibya. So he said, well, can you do me a favor and go find out do some research about this man, because you should know about Ahmed Sibir. So I spent several hours figuring out who Ahmed Sibir is. When I talk to you about justice, this is exactly what it compels me, and what burns me, and what hurts me. So I do research on who Ahmed Sibir is, and I find the following. Ahmed Sibir is a comparative religions scholar. He's a brilliant young man. Brilliant. I discovered that this man, who I didn't know about, has learned Hebrew, has learned Aramaic, does YouTube videos about ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament and the New Testament, talks about the the forgeries in the manuscript tradition, 
in the Torah and Injil in the Old and New Testaments is a brilliant man who has perfected Aramaic and Hebrew, has a set of videos that teaches Arabs Hebrew. He goes through the, the alphabet, alpha, uh, Hebrew alphabet. He has studied the Talmudic tradition. He engages in discussions about the history of the church, the comparative studies between the Quran and the Bible. A whole set of videos, Ahmed Sabir is responding to attacks and criticisms by evangelists and Islamophobes who attack the text of the Quran and he responds in a variety of ways. And I went through this entire thing and I couldn't figure out why the Egyptian government would arrest Ahmed Sabir. The man doesn't talk about politics at all. He doesn't talk about the peace treaty. He doesn't talk about the so-called peace treaty, the, the deal of the century. He doesn't talk about Sisi. doesn't talk about revolution. doesn't talk about Saudi Arabia. doesn't talk about the Emirates. doesn't talk about anything political. All he talks about is the Quran, the Torah, and, and the Injil, the, the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran, and the history of comparative religions. Then finally, I find a video in which Ahmed Sabir talked about the following. Recently, you might, some of you might have heard of this, there, there was a, the Pope was saying, greeting people, saying hello to, to, to some people. A woman grabs the, Pope, the Pope's hand, Pope Francis, and pulls him, him towards her. The Pope lost his school and started slapping the woman's hand so she will let go. The Pope apologized the next day and he said, I lost my temper. Ahmed Sabir shows this video clip and says, which is a rather obvious point, compare this to what happened with the Prophet The Pope, when a woman grabbed his hand, slapped her hand away, the Prophet was walking with Anas, in a market, a man came and grabbed him from his collar and yanked him, and yanked him so hard it left a mark on his neck. And the man yelled at the prophet, give me some money. The prophet turned around and smiled at the man. And Ahmed Sabiha was saying that the Pope reacted inappropriately when he was grabbed yanked a woman's head, the, 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 slapped a woman's hand, and the, the, compare this to how Muhammad reacted by smiling at the man that yanked him and hurt his neck, and then said, it is unfair that Islamophobes immediately celebrated the Pope's apology while anything that Muslims do that is wrong or anything in Islamic history that is negative, they, the Islamophobes rely on, focus on, and criticize, and so on and so forth. I discover, after a lot of research, that what happened is that Christians in Egypt, the church in Egypt, compared, uh, sorry, complained that Ahmed Sabir 
criticized the Pope for slapping the woman's hand. And because of that, he was arrested in Egypt. When a man, when people like that, a youthful young man like that, I've never met Ahmed Sabah and I hadn't even heard of him before. And it's my, my fault that I haven't. Of that level and that intellect, who has studied Aramaic and, and mastered it, and studied Hebrew and mastered it, and I was blown away by the quality of his lectures in his videos. And I am rarely impressed by anything on YouTube or anything that is on the net. And a man like that, for doing what all of us can do without even a second thought, criticizing the reaction of the Pope, is arrested in Egypt, and God knows what happened to him. And if you look up Ahmed Sabir and look at his picture, to, to imagine what could be happening, this man will kill you. Because he looks like a very decent, kind, quiet human being. In all his videos, he doesn't raise his voice once. Then, when I think to myself that there are still Muslims around that say Khalid al-Fadl, don't talk about Sisi in our Islamic center. When I think that still there are Muslims around that say, oh, we, we, we don't talk about injustice and we don't talk about despotism. What are you going to tell Allah? The arrest of someone like Ahmad Sabir is the arrest of every intelligent intellect in the entire Muslim world in the same way that Allah tells us killing a single human being is like killing entire humanity. When you arrest a single intellect, you've arrested scholarship, an entire ummah. You've arrested the principle of the word. And you've preempted and aborted the possibilities of justice. When the reaction of Muslims and Arabs and, and Egyptians and non-Egyptians to an injustice, baghi, that is baghi, and baghi like that. Instead of your, instead of if they are hurt by baghi, they, they in fact overcome that aggression, conquer that aggression. If the reaction is, uh, well, that's just the way that things are, then I don't see Islam. Then there is no Islam. Then as far as I'm concerned, all those who can hear about something like Ahmed, the arrest of someone like Ahmed Sabir, and go on with their lives as if nothing happened, their prayers are worthless, their fasting is worthless, their entire practice is worthless. At a minimum, at a minimum, if they cannot do anything, that their heart condemns it. 
Because if your heart doesn't condemn it, then there is no zarram in iman. Then there is not even an ayyubta of iman. At a very minimum, when you find someone speaking up, don't discourage them and don't shut them up. I will close with this. Allah challenges us. Allah challenges us to establish justice among us, to overcome zulm and baghi, to overcome injustice and aggression. Allah challenges us to institute justice through its various branches deliberative justice, distributive justice, procedural justice, and substantive justice. Allah challenges us to do so as an extension of our covenantal relationship with Allah. And as long as we do not realize that Islam is heart and soul in rebellion against injustice and oppression and despotism and suffering, then we have betrayed Islam itself. Allahumma afu anna, Allahumma aghfir lana, Allahumma arhamna, Allahumma ansur al-Islam, wahdina li aqraba min hadha rashada ya aliyya azim. Allah forgive our sins. Grant us your guidance and your light and your illumination. Allah, guide us to a better path and a clearer path and guide us to be able to uphold the virtues and morals and ethical order of Islam. Ya Ali, Ya Azim. Wa salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi. Wa mutamu bihsanin ila yawm al-deen wa aqli salah.